Scalia's, de, uh, Scalia's dissent in that case, I and mean, we're talking about a case, the case legalizing gay marriage, his dissent starts off saying that he wants to, quote, call attention to this court's threat to American democracy. Right. That's, that's right. how it starts. That's how it starts. I mean, it's 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 patently absurd. We should probably be segueing into how much of a homo- homophobic piece of shit he yeah. is because it really is truly unreal. I mean, it's like... It's like if that, like if you've ever been at like a Waffle House and some guy got drunk and started uh, calling you a fag. Like, imagine if he had a one thirty five IQ. <laughs> That's Scalia's opinions about uh, gay rights for the past twenty five years. Yeah, well, a one thirty five IQ, a mouthful of the most expensive oysters the restaurant has, and a, and a gigantic robe. So for 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 our listeners who are not in our chat, our <laughs> Yeah, our our pre episode chat. There was a, a weekly standard article uh, about Scalia, a man of many appetites. Which, when I saw the title, I thought it would be about him having like different types of appetites, right? Like maybe an appetite <laughs> for debate in an app. Yeah. But it was literally just that the dude liked to fucking house food, eat like, <laughs> fifty like, oysters, mm-hmm. and like some wine tasting. Right, his appetites are foods yeah. and alcohol. Yeah. He, ate, yeah. he ate like eighty oysters and then ordered a full dinner afterwards. Full or something. dinner, yeah. And that's after tasting twenty white wines and started pounding beers. Right. And then yeah. there, are, and, there uh, are still there are still people to this day though who think he was murdered because there's just no way a man a, a man that virile would just like die in, in his sleep. Though it has to be the Keith Richards uh, theory, right? They're like, if it hadn't killed him yet, it was never going to kill him. (laughs) (laughs) Like like that he had just developed an immunity to a cholesterol of 612. you are listening to this it should be february 13th and you will be uh hearing episode seven of mike dicta america's best named legal podcast today february 13th is a special day uh it is a day of celebration it is a day uh people don't realize it but it is a it is a holiday in some quarters it is the anniversary of the death of Antonin Scalia by Malicious Pillow. Uh, <laughs> um, and so in, uh, in honor of his death, if not the man, and specifically not the man, uh, we are uh, going on a whirlwind tour of the jurisprudence of Antonin Scalia. Back with us is uh, Mark. Uh, Twitter's kept simple. Hey, everybody. Uh, our producer, uh, Fleeroff, Michael. Hey. Uh, returning is, uh, Kami ESQ, Peter. Hey. And joining the pod for the first time, uh, Ancient Care Lord, Mike. Hi, everyone. And so this time, instead of the confusion of 
uh, Robin and Christina, who apparently sound alike, and Tarek and Mark, who apparently <laughs> sound alike. We have just given you two Michaels. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and nothing but dudes. Uh, but <laughs> what we're gonna, what we're gonna talk about today is, uh, Anton and Scalia and his, uh, his uh, outsized reputation. Um, <laughs> I guess every when I was in law school, uh, Scalia was the conservative that liberals like to respect uh, as someone of intellectual integrity. And in the intervening years, um, <laughs> there <laughs> there has been something of a dampening of that respect. I think yes. as. Uh, as he got older and crazier and seemed less uh less sincere in his beliefs yeah i think i think that's right um you know uh he did have a sort of civil libertarian strain through like his fourth amendment and defendants rights jurisprudence generally that i think can trick you into thinking especially if you're reading his early stuff that this guy is kind of principled, but I don't know if he just started listening to too much talk radio. Uh, and it is sort of a matter of record that he did listen to, you know, watch Fox news and listen to talk right wing talk radio and all that. And it just sort of poisoned his brain or if he just, you know, got more comfortable <laughs> in his old age. Yeah. I know. I think, I mean, I think it's funny that he is this guy with this kind of outsized, uh, like, and I mean, for a lot of his career sort of really well-deserved intellectual reputation, right. but in his dotage, his media diet was basically Sarah Palin talking <laughs> to Katie Couric, right? Like, it, yeah. like it just devolved into like golden Eagle dot Facebook. Right. And he just, he just would repeat everything. And he said with this sort of like, someone interviewed him about his religious beliefs and they asked if he believed in the devil. And he's like, well, of course I do silly. <laughs> like as if it was stupid to find, to find like that kind of, uh, like literal belief in a malevolent demon, uh, like it was silly to reject it, and he, like he just kind of went a little off the rails, I think. So it was for me. It was one thing that he would uh, talk about these things in interviews or or consume this sort of media diet and all that's fine. But it started to manifest itself in some of his opinions after a while, and one, yeah. one of the substantive criticisms of him was he just started to substitute owns and insults for arguments. And when you're, when you're at that level, it starts to speak something. And we're going to get into this more, I believe about your kind of uh, how principled you are. If you are kind of masquerading these owns as arguments there, it, it just didn't carry the day. So, I mean, o Obergefell was just kind of nasty and he started to go after yeah. fellow justices in a very partisan way. He bought into his own myth, right? I mean, that's that's part of like you know we were, we everyone here went to law school. Every every professor I had at the very least gave him like a begrudging respect, but most of them thought he was just like extremely brilliant and you know really needed to be respected. And uh, over over time, it it clearly got to his head. Um, and you know, I I think like the most frustrating part of it is that he kind of has. He's been able he was able to successfully masquerade as someone who's like objective, right? 
right. who's, who really is like above it all. Um, and uh, the, the opposite is true, right? The, his judicial philosophy lives in the shadow of his politics. And moreover, his politics are like Sean Hannity politics, right? This isn't, <laughs> right. it's not like Sandra Day O'Connor conservatism or something that's like a little more restrained. Uh, it's talk radio, it's Fox News, it's Donald Trump, who he would have fucking loved, right? Absolutely. Have, like, oh, yeah. Absolutely loved. And absolutely. I think it would have hurt him a little bit if he were alive while Trump's rise really happened because, because he would have said something in, in praise of Donald Trump. Even before Trump, uh, I mean, even before Trump went off the rails, he was on record of saying that he liked the kind of candor and freshness and uh, honesty that he brought. <laughs> of course, he, yeah. he tells it like it is that Trump guy. Well, there's like, yeah, you know, exactly. this. Um, uh, when people say they like Trump's candor, that always sounds to me like thinly veiled code for like I like that he says racist shit. You know, uh, I would not. I not very thinly. <laughs> But, Not when you're when you're glad that someone is candid about Mexican rapists. Right. You're not the veil is pretty gossamer, right? Um, like you, like. <laughs> but, but so I was, um, I was actually thinking about this because uh, I, I listened to this. Uh, there's this symposium um, at the Constitution Center in Philadelphia, and this guy Ed Whelan, who's the head of this conservative think tank, wrote a book about Scalia uh, about all these speeches he did. And, and Whelan, you know, loves Scalia, obviously. And he starts talking about how Scalia loved America's diversity. Um, and he points, <laughs> <laughs> he points to this. <laughs> he points to this from, speech. from Sicilians to Southern Italians. The whole yeah. <laughs> the, the, the title of the speech that he's thinking of is like an Italian's vision of the Irish or something like that. And I was like, yes, America's great diversity of Italians and Irish, Scotch Irish, and Anglo Saxons, just the whole breadth of European immigrants. It's it's really we play all time. Yeah. We play both country and western. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was so it was it was so like on the nose um yeah i so <laughs> now that we've made plenty of fun of his media diet i want to i guess we better get a little bit into like what which cases are the ones that we uh really have contempt for but i guess like, like now that i've said that i kind of want to start a little with some of where he gets a lot of his reputation rests on his this idea that he would decide things against his own politics and it always comes back to this there's one case where i think it's true and there's one case where i think it's false the place where i think it's true is that he was good on some procedural trial stuff for defendants he was a big fan of the confrontation clause right right Right, and so there and so he kind of gets he kind of gets props there uh and mark probably knows this field better than i do but he that was one where i thought he was very good and the one where he gets a ton of credit and i think much more than he deserves was uh, the flag burning case. Yes, but Thank I know you. because you, you, you would have to you like it was a you have to search like far and wide to find I think a lawyer who does not support a right to. I think it's like absurd to think that he was like going out on a limb in that way. I mean, I think broadly speaking, and yet, most and yet it was a five four decision. Like it was a it was a five four decision, which in retrospect seems insane. Because in like 
like the only way it's defensible is as a fire code issue. <laughs> and that's clearly not what this was. And like and and it was never defended with a straight face on those grounds. It was just believed to be something you could actually do because of flag codes and whatever. Is it you? And so five four decision and Scalia really did have to save it because Justice Stevens, who was you know this in his later years like a huge liberal hero, was also first and foremost a Navy man, and he couldn't get past the horror the of horror. seeing a flag on right. fire. Right. And so Scalia actually did have to, because I'm sure that uh, Scalia is not, I'll give him this credit, like I'm sure he's not in favor of it being a flag, but it's such not a close case in an expressive speech context that people even pat him on the back for it as bonkers. I think the one funny thing about that, though, is that, you know, he's got this, you know, his whole thing is based on being this textualist and he only cares about what the actual language is and how it was interpreted at the time. And I think if that were actually true, he would have come out the other way on this case. I, think. I was yes. thinking the same a, exact thank thing. You. Yeah. At the time, in you. you know, in in the late 18th century, I don't think anyone ever thought that the, you know, what what the right to free expression was at the time was basically there was uh it forbade prior restraint, right? You couldn't you right. couldn't prevent people from saying certain things. But other than that, you could punish speech that was offensive. And in 1798, the, uh, yeah, in 1798, they, you know, the ink was barely dry in the constitution and they passed the sedition acts, the alien and sedition acts and prosecuted like, uh, newspaper editors, opposition, politicians, drunk citizens, just, jeering at the at the and, president like but but in, in a way i've never really thought about this before but by getting on board with uh expressive speech it definitely allowed him uh to go much further in campaign finance mm. right? right now just paying for something is speech like, yeah. i mean there is no originalist understanding of the first amendment that is compatible with not allowing, say, Montana to regulate like uh, judicial contributions to judicial races because of known corruption. Right. right. Now, when you think about it, what right. isn't speech? Like murder is speech, right? <laughs> I feel like we're eventually headed towards that. That. Yeah, I mean, I'm John, John Hinckley expressing my feelings. I'm John Hinckley had a message for Jody right, Foster. Exactly. And that's that's why he's out now, right? Because he was protected. Was protected speech. He was just feeling a little stabby. <laughs> Guys, so before I think before we like uh, go too deep into it, we should probably explain like originalism and textualism a little bit. That's a good the, idea right, for yes. the listeners. Yes. Well, yeah. um, so Scalia, you know, when he when he came on board, when he he made two kind of, I don't want to say parallel, but um, kind of they, they certainly come in a pair, uh, philosophies. One is originalism, which is the idea that you that the Constitution should be interpreted as it would have been interpreted uh, at the time of its creation. And the other is textualism, which is how, uh, how you interpret text, um, like its statutes and the Constitution or whatever it might be. Um, and textualism basically says that you put the text of it first and foremost, other, other, over other concerns like... Um, 
say fairness or uh, or a legislative history being right. the big one, the um, congressional intent. intent, yeah, right, congressional yeah, yeah. intent. I mean, and um, you know, he he came he he was appointed in the mid eighties, coming after uh, you know a little more than a decade after Roe v. Wade, and the conservative like the the cultural context was like conservatives were thinking, you know the. The judiciary has run amok, right? These liberal, these liberal activist judges—they're all over the place. Um, we need people who are going to anchor uh, anchor us to something uh, firm and steady. Um, and you know, with with him, uh, they found like kind of their man, right? Um, and that's I think part of like the myth of him as an objective person it comes out of this like kind of cultural milieu where he, they wanted him to be symbolic of restraint. Uh, right. Yeah. Scalia is the man who launched a thousand fedoras talking about <laughs> logic and reason. No, he did. Right. Right. Um, the way that the way that but, he did but, it. But no, I I should say he didn't in like he didn't invent originalism or textualism. He right. he is probably though the guy who made a religion yeah. of it. Right. And and sort of and made it a point to say that they were the only ethical and reasonable ways to interpret and, right. the and constitution this, or statutes because once you get away from those philosophies in his telling it's all just free form judges making it up as they go outcome determinative right. and just kind of blows right past the fact that he chose a philosophy that 99 times out of 100 gets you the Scalia favored answer. <laughs> right. And, it, right. and, and he kind of, and one time, like, and like 99 times out of 100 of that remaining one, he finds a way to yeah. get to his answer yeah. anyway. Well, yeah, right. To, right. to do this, he had to uh, go and kind of rewrite history and also rewrite kind of uh, judicial or jurisprudence, or how people interpreted statutes. So, you know, a lot of uh, the focus and going back to looking at around the Constitution, uh, one of his arguments is that the people then and that the government didn't want to have a judiciary that was that was powerful in any way. Uh, they were just kind of calling uh, just very narrow, they had a very narrow job. But to make that sort of argument, you have to really misstate how things were back then. Uh, people were sick of a judiciary that was based over in England around the time that we were writing the uh, the Declaration of Independence in 76. And then over the next couple of decades is when this judicial independence movement started to get going. So even the history around that time kind of lends itself to say more that uh, the judiciary is getting independence, that they were deciding uh, cases that uh, that established this, like Marbury versus uh, Madison, and they were also right. kind of leading toward the Marshall courts mm-hmm. and how they were looked at things. Right. Well, right. and so I, I, think I, I oh, I'll, sorry. I'll, I'll go ahead. Um, so I, I read this book, this essay, um, which I think some of you have read as well, "Matter of Interpretation" by by Antonin Scalia. It's only like fifty yeah. pages, so it's it's incredibly boring, but it's only fifty pages. So that was so that was sort of the trade off, and you know. <laughs> I think we've we've talked about some of the problems with the textualism, but it's also just sort of bullshit. Like he ignores it whenever he wants to. And yeah, right. I, was, uh, I was reading this essay and sort of, I knew a bit about textualism going in and 
a question I always have is, you know, I know he, one big thing he likes to talk about in textualism is, you know, I never look to the legislative history because, you know, what, what one legislator might've said that doesn't, um, you know, necessarily mean that that's what every legislature thought it meant, which, you know, in and of itself, that's a, actually a fair point. I think I, I can see that point, but you know, Scalia, I've read your fucking decisions, you motherfucker. And you are always <laughs> quoting like the federalist papers when you're interpreting the constitution. And I mean, the federalist papers are basically the legislative history of the constitution. It's as close as you can get. It's a pretty close analogy. And I was wondering like, you know, like the final, he doesn't really get to the constitution to like the last few, last like 10, 15 pages of the book. And I was waiting to see when he was going to like get to like how he reconciles those two things. And he finally does like in the, maybe like 10 pages before the end. And I, I underlined it and I just wrote LOL on the margin because it was so ridiculous. <laughs> so he's, he's talking about, um, he says, I will consult the writings of some men who happen to be delegates to the constitutional convention. Hamilton's and Madison's writings in the Federalist, for example. I do so, however, not because they were framers and therefore their intent is authoritative and must be the law, but rather because their writings, like those of other intelligent and informed people of the time, display how the text of the Constitution was originally understood. It's like, that's really what he's going to come at me with after all? Like, <laughs> it's just yeah. like, it's projection. That was it. Right. Yeah. Like, the, the difference right. there so is... So he's huge. only... He's only reading them to determine what militia meant right up until right. the preamble is uh, just surplusage. The reason I'm reading Harry Reid's like, legislative statement is not because he's a senator. It's because he's, I consider him a learned man of his time or something. <laughs> right. what, the, what, what difference does it make? It's the same thing. <laughs> I, also, I also think there's a certain um, either, you know... <sighs> naivete or uh or 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 just purposeful uh, uh, purposeful like reductionism about how laws are actually passed like Mm. the house of representatives doesn't get together in a mass of 435 people and like hammer out a 2000 page bill line by line like they do it gets they get together in committees and small groups right and Bill sponsors take on you know the laboring oar with this stuff right. and do the lion's share of the work, and then they produce committee reports and sponsor statements that explain to the rest of the the body what the law does, what its purpose is, what problem it's solving, how it operates, what it's going to change, and then people vote based on that. And so, if you're consulting those things, that's like. There's there's legitimacy to consulting those things that he sort of you know right. alive. I, I kind of I kind of like the idea that there are that there are committee reports and floor debates and everyone explains like it's one of these things where everyone on both sides kind of agrees what the law means but disagree about whether it should or shouldn't be passed. <laughs> but then when it gets to a court, they're like. I don't know. There were probably a bunch of guys who had a secret reading. Of <laughs> right, <it>. Exactly. <laughs> they, they, they were, they were hoping that this would secretly not protect minorities. Right. <laughs> and so we have no idea. Maybe this was supposed to be the violence for women. 
So Scalia latched on to a story that he heard in the 80s from congressional staffers about uh, about committee reports and about how sometimes people would put something in there just for the later purpose of having it uh, be determinative in court. Right. So he really uh, put the kibosh on using committee reports to where people don't use them anymore. And there's a law review article from I think it's from Iowa. Uh, the University of Iowa that was talking about the statistics of how often people used to use legislative history in their Supreme Court pleadings. And ever since Scalia has been there, it's gone down by half. So it's yeah. It went from 46% to about 23%. Yeah. Yeah, I read that. So, so let me just say for a guy who hates committee reports in the, uh, in the Obamacare decision, (laughs) right? Of course. I'm pretty sure in the Scalia dissent, he cited to a YouTube video of the MIT <laughs> right. economists, right. like babbling about how, like just sort of talking out of pocket about how the state exchanges were supposed to be coercive. Right. Well, you know, and so he just like bought it. Like someone dug up one guy who was like, yeah, we were trying to force the states to do it and it's supposed to break otherwise. And who would want it to break? The best- and that apparently is binding. Right. Well, the best part about that is that you know that some clerk was tasked with finding a better source than the YouTube video and came back to him like it's actually just the video well you know I'm not sure he tasked I mean I'm sure the clerks out of a matter of integrity tried to look for it but I got a feeling that Scalia just sat in his office watching that YouTube video a lot so I think you know um, the thing that's probably truly one of his biggest legacies is the you know Kagan said uh, Justice Kagan, one of, one of the more liberal justices, um, you know, we're all textualists now. And, and I think that right. statistic about legislative history and committee reports sort of evidences that a little bit, except it kind of, there's an extent to which that's bullshit as well. Like Roberts has used legislative history in tough cases. Alito has used legislative history in tough cases. All the liberal justices will use it in tough cases. And even without using it, it's pretty clear um, you can get in from textualist type uh, logic to pretty much any dis- a- any outcome you want in, in right. most cases, well, most hard that's cases, the, frustrating the cases part. that get to that's the, the Supreme frustrating Court. Part is that yeah. the people, I think a lot of lay people think that there is some, like some magical sieve you can run that these situations through and outcomes the correct law. And Scalia kind of like, the idea that that was actually true and that the sieve yeah. is my philosophy. Right. Uh, and of course it's not. Of course it's no, not. No, you know, and it's like at the that, that constitutional symposium thing, I, I, you know, there's one of his clerks and, and you know, the clerk was like uh, saying that Scalia knew that statutory interpretation wasn't a science, it was an art and their values that, you know, end up informing your decision and all this stuff. And I was like, bullshit in like the second sentence of a matter interpretation he calls it the science right <laughs> the science of interpretation like, so, so like, don't even try that like that is precisely how he thought of it as you know was, no, no no i'm sure that's how he said it but i think the clerk was telling on it right, yeah, right. right. i think the clerk literally was right, saying right. come on look he he always wrote about it being a science because that's kind of how he wanted to be perceived but he knew Like, I mean, he wasn't really a dummy. He knew the game he was playing.
someone want to throw someone want to throw a case? Uh, Let's out talk about Castle. Where they thought he was particular. <laughs> All right, Castle. start. You go, Mike. I mean, if I want, were to speak to Scalia's ghost, or if he uh, were here today, I think I would ask him about Castle Rock. Uh, that was <laughs> give me the background because <laughs> i think that's a movie yeah. it's it's a lovely town south of uh of denver in between denver and uh colorado springs and there was a uh woman who had a who had three young children i believe that had a restraining order against uh against her boyfriend or, or husband i i can't remember which husband ex-husband yeah and uh he uh despite the restraining order came over and took the kids. She called them numerous times to try to get them to arrest him. And the uh, cops didn't, or the police did not. Uh, And it ended up that the kids got killed essentially. So the, the case turned on whether in the statute, in the Colorado statute, it says that, uh, that the state has a, a compelling interest in enforcing these sort of restraining orders and that uh, they shall arrest and shall do everything possible to do to uh, make these these orders to enforce them and to stop the harm. But Scalia somehow didn't took that shall arrest out of the sentence, which is something he says he would never do. And I would. Right. But on what like but how did he how did he justify himself? Right. Like he. So if he read shall out, what was the textualist reason for reading out the word shall? Well, he goes into some of the uh, legislative history of, uh, of the statute. That's in there, of course. <laughs> but, of course. but it is that essentially that police should have discretion to carry out these uh, police investigations and, and so on. And that it would be, in fact, burdensome upon them to have to chase down uh, people that would call in and uh, that this discretion overcomes the shall arrest that was kind of his right. his short the short answer right right so scalia so he, he points out that there are all these other laws that use language like shall arrest but that courts have sort of traditionally said well in this case shall means may arrest that cops need discretion but then you know the dissent points out and he even recognizes that you know the colorado statute at issue was one of many statutes that were enacted right around the same time in a big wave that were all in response to a domestic violence issue, which was people recognizing that cops were not enforcing restraining orders. And it was leading to, uh, you know, extremely bad outcomes. And other states had interpreted these laws very stringently to remove police discretion there was legislative history from the bill's sponsor, in this case in Colorado, saying that this removed police discretion, that it was supposed to be mandatory. Um, and the uh, the 10th Circuit, I believe it was, um, that it came up from appeal, uh, which is, you know, has a lot more familiarity with like the, juris- the geographical jurisdiction, also found that there was not supposed to be any police discretion here, that this was a purposefully stringent law. Um, and it's like very atypical for the Supreme court to, to overrule a circuit court on issues like that, because, uh, you know, the circuits have more expertise in their local jurisdictions. 
And, and I think something that Steven says in dissent that's, that's also, um, I think, so indefensible is like, if you don't trust the circuit's decision on this, the route to go is to certify it to the, to the Colorado Supreme Court yeah. and let Colorado interpret Colorado's law. But the decision to overrule the court with like geographic sort of expertise in this body of law and then interpret a state law de novo, like on, on first look, <laughs> um, and, and in doing so, interpret the plain language to mean the opposite of what it says. <laughs> just just like, like Blackstone drew it up. Right. It flies <laughs> in the face of everything Scalia supposedly stood for in terms of judicial restraint about in every respect, you know, uh, On the other hand, yeah. it was pro-cop right. and anti-woman. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's just a coincidence. Right. Uh, yeah, just right. that. Well, just like, so I mean, we, like, earlier we were talking about like Crawford, which is the confrontation clause decision, which you know overall I think is is a good decision because it does help criminal defendants. But you know that well, was explain a, why. Well, explain why. You know, so this the Constitution gives you a right to confront the witnesses against you. You know, I think most people are familiar with that general language. Um, before Crawford, I don't even really know exactly how it worked to be honest, but it was pretty wishy-washy. I was, I didn't, I didn't go to law school until after Crawford, but the, but in, in Crawford there, I think you were dealing with um, like a a victim witness who, who statement to police was, right. Was testified to. And I think that's right. 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 And you know, what Scalia basically because the police what, gave the testimony instead of the witness, right? So the so the officer would basically get on the stand and say what what the what the witness had told him. In which case, it was often the victim what what that person said had happened. What these cases were actually about were you know domestic violence cases where the common practice at the time before Crawford was you know the police would you know. Re- would testify to what the the woman who had been attacked had said. And now he was saying, well, now she has to testify. And, you know, me being a criminal defense lawyer, I, I, I understand that's a, you know, difficult situation. I still, I still support it because I think the law is overall important, but I think it's, it's interesting. You know, this is the time, this is when Scalia decided to jump on reanimating the the Crawford reanimating uh, the confrontation clause was like, a woman Practices who had been beaten by her husband, especially after after Cal. Right. Right. I mean, there was one there was one case that came up. I think it was called Maryland versus Craig that he talks about. I think this comes up uh, in his book where he talks about the confrontation clause in the context of a local state procedure where in child abuse cases they would have the witness, the the child witness, testify basically by closed circuit TV. Right, right. So one room would be the attorneys and the witness and the judge, and everyone else would, uh, including the defendant, would watch by closed circuit TV. And he made that a confrontation clause case in a way that I thought was very strange. Like he said, they have to be in the room. 
right? They have to be in the room and the witness has to like look them in the eye. And he makes it sound like the confrontation clause is about like a literal physical confrontation. Yeah. And that just sort of struck me as very strange. Like, isn't the, isn't the confrontation like testimonial? Like you want to be able to have your representative, unless you're pro se, you want your attorney to be able to cross-examine the witness. And that seems to be the important part of the confrontation clause. Not that like the person who abused you gets to stare daggers at you in public while you're trying to finally get some justice for the abuse. It just seems like a very, it, it was almost like he just wanted a tape of someone being mean to a (laughs) child. Like the underlying confrontation here is I want to see an abusive person get one last bit of abuse in. (laughs) You know, um, one of his other woke opinions, uh, I think, um, has sort of similar limitations, which was like, uh, it's actually one of my, I mean, I I legitimately like it. It's a, it's a dissent. It's the Hamdi uh, decision, which was like a national security um, decision uh, where there was this American citizen who's being held at an Air Force base, I think, in North Carolina. This is a post 9 11. This is a post 9 11. So this is like sort of in the grips still of like the war on terror. Right. And, uh, and he's held for like two years without trial, um, without charge. He's an American citizen uh, and he's contesting that he was an enemy combatant. He claimed he was like, you know, an aid worker or something. Um, And, you know, the plurality decision that carried the day ended up basically creating this ad hoc, really bullshit system where like they would get military tribunals, but, you know, hearsay could be brought in. Um, It was really sort of bending over backwards to, get this guy some process, um, but really tipping it in favor of the government. And Scalia, I think to his credit, and Stevens, the only two to stake out this position, which seems like the obviously correct position to me, is like was like, there's a long history of how we treat American citizens who take up arms against America in wartime on American soil, which is we arrest them and we try them and we have all these statutes for it. And he lists a bunch of the statutes and he cites to all the different times we've done this in like various different wars. And, you know, the only alternative to that is to suspend the writ of habeas corpus. Right. And that's in article one of the constitution, you know, Congress uh, can suspend the writ of habeas corpus, which would allows the president, the executive to detain people indefinitely during invasion or other national security threats. And Scalia was like, those are your choices, right? Nobody's suspended the writ and uh, nobody's brought charges. So like bring charges or let him go. Now I need to pause for a second and just say, this is not in the spirit of the pod to actually praise a Scalia. (laughs) I will will tell you why. I'm hoping to get to the point where there's like a failure of of logic where he ended up on the right side. Here's the edge of it though, which is that it's so formalistic that, um, you know, 
it's very much, well, he's an American citizen on American soil. And it's like, if this was in Bagram Air Force Base, Scalia would be like, you know, torture him, whatever. <laughs> That's fine. You know, or if it was uh, you know, an Afghan citizen, whatever. Like, everything sort of falls apart if you don't meet this narrow sort of space that he wanted to operate in. Uh, he was far worse you know, he was Mr. Defending Jack Bauer for saving Los Angeles by torturing people. It's like literally <laughs> something he did at a conference once. Right. Um, <laughs> I just view like not- Hamdi is like a, a fig leaf kind of uh, case for him. You right. Know? <laughs> so, you, you know, it was he ended up uh, in a lot of ways being very bad about detention and interrogation and all that stuff, except in this very narrow sense. But in that one case, it was pretty great. It was a good. Yeah, there's another. There's another good, um, like half woke Scalia. Or, I mean, the, this the the opinion itself is woke, but on kale the sundowner uh, right. systems or something like that. Yeah. It's like a. I think it's a 1998-ish case. Then um, the basic holding of it. It's pretty simple. There was a guy. Um, there was a guy who worked on some sort of oil rig and uh, was uh, ostensibly a straight dude who was being harassed uh, with um, by his co coworkers. They were basically calling him gay, and he went to HR, and HR made fun of him for being gay. <laughs> so, like something like that, <laughs> something just ridiculous. Yes. And no, no, um, HR said that it, he, the whoever's in HR was also getting made fun of for being gay and being harassed. Okay. So, maybe, maybe I got that wrong. It was a little less ridiculous, yeah. but I mean, we're talking about an oil rig, right? right? So this is like, I mean, it's pretty, it's, it's the, the allegations. By, by are the standards, egregious. all five of us are gay. Right. Right. That's an awful thing. You know, so, yeah. um, he, you know, Scalia said the, the basic question is, does Title seven, which bars discrimination uh, based on sex, actually protect against this? Because this is just this is, uh, you know, same sex harassment. Right. And he said, of course, it does. Or at least it might, because um, it, what it bars is harassment, quote, because of sex. And this is almost certainly because of sex. Right. If the if it were a woman, you couldn't be uh, harassed for being for being attracted to, to man men. Right. Um, and the reason it's half woke is because if you take that logic, Title Seven should cover uh, anything, uh, any discrimination against gays, discrim- uh, discrimination against transsexuals, mm-hmm. etc. Um, all of which is quote because of sex unquote. Um, but of course, Scalia uh, in interviews and such thought that that was completely ridiculous, uh, <laughs> and you know he always he always backed away from it, and uh, he and he was as far as I know never confronted with that opinion directly. Um, but the opinion is like all the foundation you need to have discrimination laws cover transgendered folks, mm-hmm. uh, and it no no one has taken it there, and Scalia himself walked it back, even though there's there's as far as I can tell, it's inescapable. He's he's been trapped by logic, by his own logic, <laughs> logic destroyed by his own logic. Well, he always, I mean, he always, he always was like that. He always had, he always had like in opinions like that, what he thought was a poison pill. Like I think in the first, um, oh God, which was the, I think it, it was one of the early, uh, gay rights cases, maybe in Colorado, um, where they didn't, hmm? Yeah, Romer. 
Yeah, I think so. And he had, I think his descent had like this poison pill where he's like, by this logic, you would have to allow gay marriage. (laughs) (laughs) And then, then of course, the gay marriage cases come down and he doesn't really consider it precedent. He just considers it for, though, of course, people would cite like Scalia dissenting. Right. In a way that probably drove him crazy, but like what he thought of as a poison pill was like to other people kind of the point. They're like, yeah, right. it is of a piece. It is the same discrimination. Well, and so like if, you know, we're the ones who won this case. So Stare right, Decisis right. says it's, that the next one counts. I mean, one of, one of the themes of his like of his dissents is like, you know, here are these hoity-toity, uh, nine rich, uh, highly educated Supreme <laughs> Court justices, and they are just inflicting their uh, horrifying liberal will on the rest of you. <laughs> They're inflicting and, their and rights it, upon you. Here, here are some right. rights, the and, tyranny and, and, of you know, more I mean, rights. <laughs> the irony of it, the irony of it, I mean, is twofold. One is that by the time um, the, the, that gay marriage was legalized nationwide, gay marriage was actually very popular. Right. Um, yes. But the other is that in other decisions, the most notable of, of which I think is probably um, Shelby County v. Holder, which is a Voting Rights Act case that was actually a Roberts decision. But basically, the question at hand, um, the Voting Rights Act um, required certain uh, troublesome jurisdictions to, to uh, go to the federal government every time they implemented changes to their voting laws so that the federal government could um, let them know that the changes were not racist. The, pre, the pre-clearance under That's Section right. 5. That's right. Um, and at, um, at oral argument, so it was, it was a Roberts decision, uh, but at oral argument, Scalia, um, so first of all, he described this as a racial entitlement, quote, uh, and, um, and he also said that the fact that it passed by like I think it was it was nearly unanimous. It was, 90, it was 97 to yeah. zero. Right. It was ninety-seven to zero. So he said the fact that it passed by such a large margin is actually <laughs> indicative of something like corruption, right? <laughs> like in normal circumstances. No, I don't think he said it was no, corruption. No, no, I think no, he I, said no, what he said was no, what he I think what he said was it just proves that people are afraid to vote against right. Which is like, yes, <laughs> and he was this one principled crusader riding in to protect the rights of Southern jurisdictions to reinstitute racist voting schemes. Riding in on a horse with a white hood. (laughs) (laughs) It's just me against the world. That, that that reminds me. We should we should cover like just kind of a greatest hits of the shit that he has said about gay people oh, in, in actual opinions. Because <laughs> well, it, it's like Supreme so he Court, often. He I will preface this the by saying sexual agenda signing right. So he he often prefaces it prefaces it like prefaces it with something like many Americans believe or like you know some, <laughs> something like that where it's like where he can just kind of distance himself a little bit. But he has said that. So yeah, he said that the uh, the legal profession signed on to the homosexual agenda. Uh, he said that many Americans don't want uh, gays to be their business partners, uh, teachers, scoutmasters, etc. Um, and uh, he has said that 
is raising children and uh, almost certainly has a, a negative effect on the children. Uh, and this is just this is just in his decisions, right? This isn't like right. He refer- I think he referred to the first like like the first. I think in Romer versus Evans, he referred to the not explicitly anti-gay opinion as a culture conf. Yes, right, right. <laughs> right. Uh, um, he calls a. Uh, it was an Obergefell. He calls it a judicial putsch, like a. Ugh. <laughs> like basically, the, the court Boy, is hit, like the, majo- for German, the majority yeah. is Hitler. <laughs> uh, right, exactly. Yeah. The majority is basically Hitler, and I am, you know, all of the allies <laughs> fighting Wait. against. Him. You know, even when, when he's well, not but speaking I mean, about the, all of those, ca- uh, when he's not speaking about gay people specifically, he just in a broader sense. And I, I have a lot of uh, sympathy for the arguments that uh, textualism specifically is inherently conservative, but. How he frames it in U.S. Virginia is our purpose is to preserve our society's values, not to revise them and to prevent backsliding. He gets right. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that he always that he says this is sort of important to his philosophy is when people talk about like, you know, the levels of scrutiny that certain laws uh, are subject to. He considers a free-floating general moral approbation to be a sort of sufficient basis. Right. And so and so homophobia itself, because it's not homophobia, it's you know, it's like connected to their core religious values or whatever, like that becomes a cognizable state interest right. because it's just sort of the will of the people <clears throat> via their sort of general sense of values, regardless of how that affects other people. And, yeah, and right. whether yeah. those and whether those values are uh, themselves like equal protection violations. Yeah, he deprives the Oh, well, so I was going to say, and so that leads him to say maybe one of the most awful things he, I think, ever wrote, which was, I think, in his Lawrence dissent, when he's explaining that anti-sodomy. Lor- wait, dude, wait, dude, slow down. Lawrence is the anti, Lawrence is the sodomy yeah, case? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. He's explaining why a law criminalizing sodomy is justified. Only homosexual sodomy. <laughs> right, only homosexual sodomy. Right. Is, everyone, everyone is free to engage in heterosexual sodomy, though. Right, right. <laughs> equally free, equally right. so, free. So, so this law so is majesty. Law, yeah, this law is justified <laughs> based on moral. Yeah, your your the moral values of the society, and if that's not a cognizable interest, according to him, then all these other laws that are based on that same moral interest are in doubt. And he starts listing like bestiality, mm. incest, murder. 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 Right. like, and it's like, and he's just lumping in, uh, you know, homosexuality, uh, sexual orientation I mean, with bestiality. He's saying what is like, you know, what yeah. is our uh, objection to murder if not just just a mere moral objection? Like, who else could possibly couch it in any other terms? <laughs> right. I do not know. Right. Uh, I, I have no other mode of analysis here other than a binary moral immoral uh, judgment. That's it. I think I think his his reputation is going to change um, dramatically because I mean I know after this episode comes out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because we are so influential. <laughs> No, but I know when I was coming up in law school, uh, you know, a lot of my professors who were, were very smart and very left-leaning um, nonetheless respected him. Uh, and I think because his, in the 80s and 90s, he did seem to have that sort of, you know, uh, principle 
and polish that, that we talked about, but it's like, I didn't read a lot of Scalia in most of my one L classes, but when I got into con law, uh, you know, one of the first Scalia opinions I read was his Lawrence descent mm. where he's talking about the homosexual agenda. He's railing about how like, you know, by this logic, we should have overturned Roe v. Wade. It's like an angry blog post more than a dissent. He's right. like talking about a case from like seven years earlier that he lost, that he's still pissed about, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. and uh, and comparing sexual orientation to bestiality. And you're like, mm. who the fuck is this guy? And why do why does anybody respect him? You know, right. and, and I think younger lawyers are going to be seeing a lot of, more of that stuff. And not going to have nearly the same esteem for him as so, the last generation. And I think especially true also because his sort of, you know, the way he changed over the years, the way he sort of degraded, I think really tracked or almost like presaged the development of conservatism in the United States where, you know, when he was first getting started out, there was this sort of, you know, I think really ideologically conservatives have changed really very little from the eighties. I think they've always, you know, they've always been racist and homophobic and, and, and all these other things. But, but back then when he was first, you know, when he was first on the Supreme court, he sort of was able to to leave that mask up. That yeah. Was, was more right. common at the time. But, you know, as we got into the early two thousands, that's when you, you started him see him talk about the homosexual agenda and things like that. He was really not, he wasn't, he wasn't letting it, hiding it. And I don't know if it was so much that he was that, that you know, he was trying to hide, he wasn't trying to hide it anymore. It that he was adapting his own, you know, what he was saying to what he was maybe feeling from the conservative movement around him. Or, and that's really the fight, where the fight was on at that point. Right. 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 And okay. now we see it on full, you know, and now that he's been viciously murdered, we now see it on full display. <laughs> so right. the Trump and I mean, what's what's interesting is like kind of his his legacy, like in his colleagues, because in like in Alito, I think you have a slightly degraded version of like the same thing, uh, but he's a little he's not quite as. Uh, charming as Scalia <laughs> like Scalia could turn a phrase yeah. and beautiful like people thought of him as kind of funny and so Alito is like the the sort of like less palatable version of it <laughs> like Thomas took his like took his originalism and is like he like like there were like 20 cases a term where he concurs and he's like, but I would re-examine this entire field of law to go back to 1786, right? Everything that has been decided since Chief Justice John Jay needs to be reconsidered in light of natural law. And then the third is the most, is the latest. So, and the latest is Gorsuch who clearly, clearly sees Scalia as his avatar. And and so not only do you have a dumbed-down version of textualist, originalist Scalia, you also have a really dumbed-down version of Quipmeister Scalia. Because Gorsuch is an insipid writer. He's not good. Like, really. Like, he wants to be the guy who carries... 
like Scalia's flag as yeah, he, like the Bob Roberts conservative judge. He's in it for the and owns. It's Kagan. He's in it for the like, owns too. Like Kagan is the one who writes like a sort of you know fun Scalia can turn a can like tell a joke yeah. without you know ruining the legal analysis around right. it. And so like oh this is going to be a bad. 30 years of Gorsuch yeah. torturing both yeah, the law right. and my nerves right. with his sense. You know how, like, every every 80s movie, every 80s movie uh, where there's a bully has, like, the bully's just ungodly sidekick where you're just like, oh, my God, fuck this guy. Like, he's not even strong. Uh, that's, that's, that's Gorsuch. Yeah. That's how I feel about Gorsuch. Well, I, you know, I think that all the, uh, how he affects his colleagues on the Supreme Court bench is interesting, but... Uh, below that, there are going to be a whole lot of people coming in, being uh, being appointed under this administration. But then also, it's just bog standard conservative. Uh, if you're a candidate, you're out there. You say, "I'm going to elect or appoint people that are originalists and textualists." So there are, and Scalia will admit in his all of his talking about statutory interpretation and how he does it as an originalist as, and as a textualist that you have to be kind of careful doing it. He even says that you can't just go in here blindly and apply the dictionary, although that's what he does. Uh, but, <laughs> but uh, so it's not something you can enter lightly and, and just go do, but we're going to have a whole lot of people that think that they're spitting back out the, the original intent of all of these things because they've internalized the kind of game theory around, around this. Right. Yeah. Should we talk Heller or should we uh, should we talk? Uh, uh, well, I mean, we could probably I, you know, we'll probably uh, I think we should uh, because like Heller. Yeah. <laughs> like Heller, Heller was the case that sort of re. That that brought the Second Amendment uh, to life. Yeah. After it was essentially dead letter for a long right. time, because the 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 prevailing opinion, it was in like Supreme Court uh, dicta, but it hadn't really been contested was that the second amendment did, did not prevent the States from having like reasonable regulations of gun ownership. Uh, And Heller in a very sort of broad way, using a very contested historical analysis of the 1700s, uh, just like read the very kind of garbled syntax of the Second <laughs> Amendment to establish indisputably that there is a right to personal ownership of handguns and long guns and rapid fire, mm-hmm. right. uh, at least semi-automatic uh, weapons, uh, and really sort of rewrote you know, the kind of under the understanding of uh, how states and the federal government could regulate gun ownership. Right. And not just I mean, what's interesting about it is that I don't I think to the layperson, even before Heller, um, the Second Amendment did could, can, was about the individual right to bear arms. And that is basically because of uh, the NRA and like minded organizations yeah. who had been kind of pushing that line for 30 years. And by the time Heller came around, uh, and uh, and and came down. People were basically thinking, like, yeah, well, that, that, you know, of course, that's that's how it is. Um, I think I think at the time, uh, this was two thousand eight, and I think Obama had been uh, was the was the nominee, and he came out in support of Heller. I mean, it was 
this is there was no opposition politically to it. Uh, and I mean, it's I think to the layperson, the idea that um, 12 years ago, lawyers would have thought there was no no real individual right to bear arms. Uh, it would, would seem a little bit crazy, but it's absolutely what the what the legal milieu was 12 years ago. Right. Yeah. And, and well, and, and I think, you know, um, I think one thing that Heller demonstrates is uh, one way or another, whether you agree with Scalia or you agree with Stevens in dissent, who did his own history, um, is that judges in general are not good at doing history. <laughs> right, <laughs> so right. the idea of building an right. entire interpretive philosophy around judges doing like histiography, histiography is Historia. historiography. <laughs> Guess who's correcting who now? <laughs> <laughs> You can't get your tongue out of the way. Um, you know, it's, 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 there's like a built in problem there. There's like a fundamental yeah. problem. To say nothing of the and fact that think, history doesn't always give you clear answers, even in when done. Yeah. Right. And I think we may have talked about this on the last episode about, uh, about how Scalia had like this unfrozen caveman thing about patent cases and how judges don't really understand science, but he's really, really, really fucking confident about how the 1700s felt about personal gun ownership (laughs) in a sort of very general context, right? right? right, Not not people needed guns because they may be called to take up arms, but they just needed them for shooting shit. And so so having your own, like, personal uh, armory at home – was obviously what the framers intended. Right, right, right. I mean, what's what's absurd about it the most, though, is that it's really it really belies how shallow his textualism is. Right when the so the the preface the preface to the Second Amendment is what is someone <laughs> someone happened well regulated <laughs> militia being necessary for the yada yada yada. What is it uh, the the preservation or so, I, right. whatever I. It, it, it refers to, to really making a, a well-regulated <laughs> militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the right. people yeah. to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Right. right. So, um, thanks. Nailed it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, read, I read it off my back tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> so Scalia, Scalia goes in and basically. Every, everyone's eyes are on the preface, right? If if it's if this is really about a well-regulated militia, then how do you separate it out from that and and create an individual right? And Scalia does it by by basically saying, despite the fact that this is like a hundred and change uh, page long opinion, basically in a couple paragraphs says, well, those clauses are really meant to state the purpose of the rest of the clause and can be ignored in uh, the interpretation of them. So don't worry about it. And just drops it. Like, yeah. right off the bat, it's like, just ignores it. It's like a it. smoke bomb. Yeah. When, when you, right? There is no... There is when no you compare the entire amendment, no it's 27 right. words, yeah. and the preface, the preamble, is 13. It's like half the amendment. He's like, eh. But, but yeah, no. you have to compare and, and, that to his own words on it, where he says our job is to give effect to the words of that are contained in the statute, but not to the words that aren't there. And he's doing the inverse here. He's taking words out of it. Right. <laughs> right. 
Right. right. I mean, it, it, it violates a very fundamental principle of textualism. Uh, it's called the rule against surplusage, yeah, right. which is that you, you give force and meaning to words that are there. If you ignore them, uh, you are making a textualist error. Um, and he commits it right off the bat because he wants people to have guns really badly. <laughs> and, even if, and even if you just consider it like a preamble or a prefatory f- phrase— even in textualist canons, forgetting about legislative history, the preamble is supposed to guide right. how you right. read right. everything right. else. This is, right. right? This is this is the part of the legislative history that everyone agreed to put in the actual <laughs> final law. Right. Right. And so it's not you're not even guessing at, you know, the people sneaking something into the committee report. At this point, you're actually looking at what they decided on to announce as a statement of purpose for the law. And it goes beyond that. I mean, like, so I I thought the dissents are fairly convincing. Uh, Stevens dissent set points out that Madison, who drafted it, uh, basically uh, explicitly rejected versions that included uh, express references to civilian use, left it out intentionally. It might have been in. It got left out. Uh, the other part of this is that there was a case from the 30s called U.S. v. Miller, where yeah, um, that's the where uh, some guy there was a federal a federal conviction for transporting a sh- uh, short barreled shotgun, right? Just a sawed off shotgun, um, and uh, everyone thought that this pretty much stood for the proposition uh, that the Second Amendment does not really protect the individual right. And Scalia said, no, 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 um, that's different. Um, that's about uh, banning weapons who are, are that are carried by people who are generally not law-abiding citizens. <laughs> that's that's his reasoning, and that's really the long and short of his reasoning. But that's that's it. And I, not only that, but I think I think for for the even though all conservative opposition usually read around Miller, that was one way. The other way was that the Second Amendment was apparently not central to the holding. And so they were like, oh, it's just dicta, and it's not binding because it wasn't central to the holding. And so we can just, since no one ever really interprets the Second Amendment, <laughs> the one case that does, we're not even going to count. Right. And so we, he decided, like, they basically wrote on an effectively clean slate constitutionally as far as they were. I I think that the only reason that Scalia confronted it is because he didn't want to be accused of not confronting. Right. Right. Um, But I mean, his, his, his reasoning is basically saying that the the legality of any given weapon is contingent upon something like whether criminals enjoy them. Like are are criminals using a lot of them? Well then, yeah, you can make that illegal. Uh, And then he he names a bunch of other crap uh, like uh, can't give gun or not banning guns to felons, banning uh, guns in schools. He just says, yeah, of course that stuff's all all okay, right. but he provides like no actual right. framework for analyzing it, right? Um, and oh, pretty right. much like rejects the like, idea of even providing. Right. It. He doesn't. They don't even provide a standard of review for right. how to review future guns cases. And you know, he says in the decision that you know the sort of the the line for where you know what what types of weapons are protected and what aren't are the weapons that the weapons that are protected are ones that aren't highly unusual as at a highly unusual in a society at large. But when he goes through his whole textual interpretation, he, you know, even though he says that it's a right that goes beyond the right to militia, he literally says it encompasses that you do have a right to sort of 
protect yourself from federal tyranny. And obviously, if you're going to be protecting yourself from the federal government, you do need weapons that are highly controlled society <laughs> right. at large. Like you're not right. you're not going to like protect yourself from the U.S. Army with a handgun. You're going to need like at least a bazooka or something. Like, <laughs> but for some reason, that's not allowed. Look inside, look inside your tiny mind, then look a bit harder. Cause we're so uninspired, so sick and tired of all the hatred you harbor. So you say it's not okay to be gay. Well, I think you're just evil. You're just some racist who can't tie my laces. Your point of view is medieval. To, to switch from uh, the pinnacle of the legal profession uh, to scraping along the bottom, uh, we we now we're going to move over to uh, to a more recent case. Uh, this is uh, this is a uh, Glazer Glazer v UCB, uh, a former uh, improviser. I suppose he considers himself not a former improviser, but he is very much a former <laughs> improviser. Uh, former improviser, sketch comic, and stand-up uh, comedian named Aaron Glazer has sued the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater and two of its employees uh, for kicking him out of the theater uh, on the very shallow grounds that he was, uh, to the minds of the UCB, credibly a accused of multiple rape <laughs> serial uh, which 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 uh you would think would be enough but under the under this uh under this complaint it is not enough on the grounds that he received no due process uh and as a school that receives federal funding uh that uh the lack of process was improper and uh, he needs to be added back to a Harold team. Right. And, and he says, um, you know, the lack of process was because they desired to reach the result of, you know, finding him a rapist because they were discriminating against him because he's a man. And uh, that's sort right. of the, the heart of it is that this is all discrimination, anti-male discrimination, um, sort of ginning up this fake eight separate accusations yeah. of and, rape. <laughs> and, while, and while all of that is true, and it sounds like very heady, serious stuff because he's been accused of rape, and that is a very serious charge. It is horrible if it's true, and it is horrible for him if it is false. Uh, mostly, uh, I want to just make fun of this. Complaint. It's so bad. It is. It is so tortured. It is so tortured. I just want to talk about how, like, it, you need to Aaron Glazer. You need to look at what this guy looks like, or at least the photo that they used. <laughs> yeah. oh, I'm yes. not throwing those stones in, the, in this in the, glass. In the New York, in the New York Post article. I mean, I'm not, not about his like appearance, like as you know. His, his actual physical facial appearance, but just the way he presents himself. He's like every, like every guy on in 
on Twitter from Brooklyn who's like ever like gotten mad at me for some weird reason on Twitter. Like he looks like just like the amalgam of all those guys put together. Right. And then like made now this is this glass this this glass house has gotten even more personal. So watch I think I saw he was on a Twitter guy in Brooklyn who is currently mad at you. Our, our buddy, I think our buddy Aaron was uh, appeared on Wolf of Wall Street as one of the like scumbag stockbrokers too. He, uh, that's what his IMDb. Yeah, so I, I looked up his IMDb and he is like I think it's like broker number five <laughs> in the Wolf of Wall Street. So if everyone, if everyone, if you saw the movie, you remember. Him. Uh, <laughs> but but to get to to get to the complaint, I just want to say that like right off the bat. Like paragraph ten, uh, it he says UCB wasn't still is the employer of plaintiff Glaze. Nope, no, no. <laughs> and I I feel like employer is going to be one of those heavily contested things because when you read further into the complaint, what he was paid in as an employee. Uh, were drink tickets and classes. Right. Right. <laughs> like, that's it. He was, he was given free improv courses, he was given drink tickets, and he could comp his pals to a $5 show once in a while. Right. I can so I can speak to this a little bit because I do I do employment law in New York City right. and uh, so a uh, you know I don't usually like to come to conclusions this strong but absolutely fucking not are they his employers <laughs> it, it just no way and so generally speaking when you read a complaint and it just says like oh they were his employer and then there's nothing to support it that's going <laughs> that's they're gonna lose that uh, well I mean how did like there was actually there was one act interesting. Point like how does it work in terms of like how do interns fit into the yeah, so employment schema? I thought he was an intern prior to uh, to this all happening, um, but ba- so interns are employees, and in fact, in New York City, under the New York City uh, Human Rights Law, independent contractors are subject to discrimination laws. Uh, which is which is why I mean, if I'm you know, you read his his complaint and he brings claims under federal law, under state law, under city law. If he had just brought it under city law and I were UCB, I'd be a little bit nervous because that's probably his best shot. Usually, when someone brings it under every single law they possibly can, they know that they're not going to win. Right. Um, well, and I mean, you know that's that's what he does. I mean, I mean, they brought stuff under the Cleary Act, which like Section D of it says like there's no private right of action right. for this. So, um, right. I mean, you can wipe out half these claims immediately. Right. Uh, right. Uh, the federal the federal Title Seven claims gone. Uh, the Cleary Act claims uh, gone. The New York State claims gone. I mean, I think that the the bottom line here is that maybe he could say he was an employee in New York City. Uh, I, I I don't really think it's the case. But on the other hand, UCB and you know places like this, they're operating in a very weird gray area where you know they can deny that people are employees, they can des- deny that they're business partners, and if they deny enough, if they are if they're creative enough, their lawyers are good enough, they can deny being liable for any sort of conduct whatsoever, just because the the nature of the relationship doesn't really fit squarely into any single category. Um, so if you give him the benefit of the doubt and say, yes, uh, he, it's possible that they discriminated against him under the New York City uh, human rights law, 
then you can squarely say that no, they absolutely didn't fucking discriminate because he just <laughs> he got accused of raping someone, and they were like, well, uh, we think that's it. Uh, and and that's and that's all. That's not gender discrimination. <laughs> you, you, right, wait. right. Rapists are a protected class. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I was um, going to say. Is like I read this complaint and I was like, I don't, I don't see where discrimination is actually alleged. Like they don't even try. They don't. It's it's, it's actually bizarre. No, they do. They do. They say so? like they they basically frame it in the context of like he literally frames it in the context of the philosophy. Of believing yeah. women, yeah, they mentioned me and, too, or, and since, or, or believe women, yeah, or something. and believe Time's women, up. and Time's since, up, yeah. and since they, <laughs> and since you believe women, you inherently don't believe the man being since, since I always so disagree with women. This, this, first of all, and I want to note this all happened before the believe women movement took really took off. This was August Be- twenty sixteen. Yeah, yeah. Believe all lives, right? <laughs> <laughs> believe everyone. Uh, all right, but wait. Let's get into the let's get into the complaint and the things that I found particularly funny. Okay, about. the uh, one of them was uh, paragraph twenty three. He talks about the origins of his comedy career, and so he's got two long paragraphs talking about his <laughs> like you know living out with his parents <laughs> on Long Island and going like t- commuting into the city constantly to like go to UCB shows. And then he went to college and uh, he, in the fall of 2006, he transferred to Northeastern and moved to Boston to attend college. Uh, And even though he was doing that, he would come back on weekends. And then he says, despite having stellar grades (laughs) and the respect of his professors (laughs) near the end of plaintiff's 2006 fall semester, he took a permanent leave uh, of his studies, which is to say... Uh, he left during his first semester. He has no grades. Like, there are no grades. Yeah. He does not have stellar grades uh, because he has not he completed taken, a single credit hour. He could have taken hour. a midterm. All right, let's be fair <laughs> yeah, to yeah, this, yeah. man. He did well on his midterm, uh, but he has no grades. No. <laughs> right? Like, he, and so I love, I just love that he has the respect of his professor. <laughs> there, there is no way a single Northeastern professor <laughs> noticed or cared <laughs> about Aaron Glazer. Why? Because no professors notice or care about any undergraduate student ever. That's because like, they haven't like seen no his way. improv, though. They, if they had seen his improv, I think we'd be having a different conversation. Right. Well, I'll tell you, my one of my favorite paragraphs is after 38 paragraphs that are a pretty dry recitation of his history with UCB and his career. Paragraph 39 just says when plaintiff Glaser was first involved with UCB in 2006 as a student, (laughs) O'Neill, the current artistic director, who was then also the UCB course registrar, mocked plaintiff Glaser for having his parents pay for his classes. (laughs) Humiliated plaintiff Glaser. It's not connected to any claim. It just goes on with the complaint. It's it's just like dropped in there. I mean, uh, also, who at UCB is paying for their own courses? Am I missing something about the improv world here? I'm an eye banker. I'm an eye banker, but like on the side, I am also employed by UCB. Um, uh, It's a thing I, I love to do. 
what, what I liked about him uh, outlining his his humiliation in paragraph 39 is that it really takes a turn for the maudlin when the, the headline for the next factual subset is the UCB meeting and its devastating effects on plaintiff Glazer's life. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, before we make fun of him further, I should say that if these allegations are untrue, it does sound like a bummer. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, so not not yeah. to just, you know, not I don't want to disbelieve any woman, uh, but it it would be a bummer if uh, if these were untrue because he, he has allegations about like his his friend his friends not liking him anymore basically right. kicking him out I mean he got kicked out of his kicked apartment. apartment kicked out of his apartment which apparently his lease had a clause where like you can't rape anyone <laughs> and- I I also I also really liked um, that he just alleges without ever alleging her existence beforehand says that he's grown despondent from ongoing trauma of losing his friends, his career, and his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. It's like the girlfriend materializes in the complaint only to be taken from him. After. His, girl, right. like his, his girlfriend, girlfriend who lives like, in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. He lives in Canada yeah, and she broke up with him. The girlfriend that he definitely had <laughs> left him after these allegations. And who he's sure. now suing. Yeah, he's now suing. <laughs> Right, we should talk. So we should talk about the woman that he sued <laughs> for thirty-eight million dollars. Uh, so someone, I, I I might get some facts here wrong. Someone correct me if, if I'm wrong. But basically, someone posted on a public forum uh, that posted the accusations functionally as if they were true. Um, under UC- and, and said he had been yeah, under yeah, UCB letterhead. Been, that's right. That's right. Under UCB letterhead, and said that he had been banned. You know, banned all that. Um, and uh, he sued her for $38 million, which is uh, the value of, of, uh, of something. What is does he, I have we, his future earnings. It's his future earnings if he lived to be like 2,000. The value of stock trader number five uh, from Wolf of Wall Street is $38 million. Well, one of, and then he dismissed that complaint ostensibly on the grounds that he didn't have the money to pay for an attorney. Right. And if uh, it, it seems it's I mean, that seems bizarre. I, I, so generally speaking, plaintiffs are on contingency, uh, meaning that they are not paying by the hour. Uh, and when someone says they can't pursue a case because of money, they are lying. Uh, and in fact, it is because it could be any number of things, but because the generally because the lawyer didn't feel it was worth pursuing it. Not, not to say that that's what's happening here, but if I mean, but I think no, I think here he clearly dis. I think he clearly dismissed the other suit because it was very obviously protected speech. Right. I mean, it was like <laughs> right. the person say, like he couldn't deny that people were saying he was, <laughs> or that he right? like banned. they clearly there clearly there was like. He clearly had been banned by UCB, so that was true. He clearly was banned because of the rumors and the accusations that he was a rapist. So, like, everything in that letter, like, was at least sort of opinion based on disclosed fact. Like, there was no, there was no like, actual uh, charge against the other person, though it makes its way back into the complaint because he just alleges on information and belief that the only way that that letter could have been generated was if the the meeting at UCB uh, they had violated their promise not to leak the contents of the the meeting where they were like, we're going to ban you. 
and it's because people are saying you're a rapist, but we're not going to tell anyone, so you just go about your business. And then, like, he left the door, and then, like, 24 hours later, everyone knew that he had been banned, and it was because people thought he was a rapist. But I don't even know what, like, obligation they have to not right. leak it. He, I think, I think he was claiming... they said they weren't a, going I think he's claiming it's a Title IX thing, right? That they can't leak it under Title IX. Right. Um, it, but it's certainly in the... So, by the way, I mean, we, we should... We kind of covered this earlier, but Title IX and Title VII are uh, in conflict here to a degree. Um, to say that they are both like this... Wait, so to, what is Title VII? What is Title IX? Title, title IX is... So these are covering discrimination in two different contexts. Title VII is employment, and Title IX is educational institutions, uh, certain educational institutions receiving federal funds. Um, so title... So to say that they are both his employer and his educator, I mean, it's, it's inherently contradictory, right. and he he is almost certainly just throwing the kitchen sink at it and thinking maybe one of these uh, we, I can get away with. Um, of course, the other side of that is that maybe UCB has such a weird relationship with the people that do improv with it <laughs> that it has like somehow protected itself uh, from, from, li- right. from liability. Right. To me, I think the funny outcome of this would be if the UCB has to pay its performance. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Like, like it ends up being a wage an hour case. Well, that's, that's what I thought. It, that's what it felt like, because if you want to say that they're his employer, then they owe him minimum wage. That's what I would have gone for. I mean, it's like, by the way, I do all this promotion for them and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working under their masthead and uh, all they do is give me free drinks. Uh, it seems a little bit weird. That's that's a case. I, I, I take that. I thought I mean, I that's re- I was shocked that there wasn't like a wage an hour charge here just to sort of burn the place down in any way. And the reason why is because wage and hour law is complicated and lawyers who do wage and hour law are specialized and lawyers who do discrimination law, while specialized, uh, tend to have, there there are more bottom feeders in that business. I'll say that it's a little bit simpler. I I looked up the, his lawyer and he does like, it's like 35% of his practice and it's 35% PI personal injury. And then a lot of like other bullshit. Um, Although he is the one thing I the found roots right now one, on behalf of the Roots drummer Knuckles. Um, oh, wait, say that again. <laughs> yeah, uh, the Roots recently parted ways with their drummer, and the lawyer representing Glazer is also representing the drummer who's mm-hmm. suing them for continuing to profit off of his uh, image. That's what Glazer. That's Glazer googled like who's representing the Roots drummer, <laughs> right. and that's that's how he that found, this, dude. found this guy. Yeah. Let's not. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, what I, the two things I found uh, when I when I googled him was on his Facebook page. The top, the most recent post is basically an MRA. Meme. Yes, <laughs> uh, and and the second thing is that he's a registered agent with the NFL Players Association as an agent. And when you look at his agent profile page, it very prominently says that he has no clients and has negotiated no contract. Just in case. So no past or present clients, <laughs> but is a registered agent. Well, I, hear, I hear Aaron Glazer's arm strength is just through the roof. <laughs> he runs a 12340. <laughs> um but oh, I gotta find there was one other paragraph, which was just sort of so hilariously self-aggrandizing, and I can't find it right now. 
are you are you looking for maybe paragraph forty, Charles? Uh, are you? What about the sellout shows? Was that it? <laughs> no, the sellout shows was funny. Oh yes, it was forty. He was in the ten, <laughs> the ten years at UCB. Plaintiff Glazer never had any issues with anyone. Quite contrary, he was a beloved figure of UCB, <laughs> readily offering a hand to students and experienced performers alike and producing innovative new shows that filled seats. <laughs> I can't believe they wanted to part with this guy. I will say I spoke with, uh, I, I know uh, one person who will remain nameless, who was apparently on a house team with him, uh, and uh, described him as a piece of work. (laughs) He did not describe him as a beloved figure. (laughs) And and I think, I think they're not going to like lack. And I think like in a lot of cases, the answer will uh, deny knowledge or information sufficient to assess the truth of the claim. I assume they will just deny yeah. that he was a beloved. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's right. Like just gratuitously say that's not. <laughs> well, right. I never had issues with anyone. The eight rape accusations <laughs> speak no. quite to the contrary. Also, yeah. in the complaint, he says that someone like made fun of him for having his parents pay. Like you can't. Is that not? I guess that's not an issue. He's saying he has no issues. Beloved. Uh, Beloved figure, right? I mean, what's what's the we- I think the weird thing about this is that uh, it, this is like if you assume, let's assume uh, that he is correct, right? He didn't he didn't do anything wrong. He didn't rape anyone. Um, his complaint is terrible. All of these causes of action, I think, are really bad. Um, but I'm also not sure what he would have done if uh, if it were if they were false accusations um, and. In general, I think that there's like a weird blind spot here, um, not in a kind of men's rights activist way, but in a just if there were procedures on the front end for uh, women to kind of like run uh, run these sorts of issues uh, up a ladder that made some sense. Right. You wouldn't get to this point where someone is just filing lawsuits that may or may not be completely insane and almost certainly are. Uh, and everyone is dealing, uh, everyone's kind of trying to evaluate it and deal with the aftermath, right? There's no front-end procedures here right. well, that make yeah, any real yeah, sense. That's the, that's the problem is that, like, actual process has, we have decades of evidence that it fails victims of sexual harassment and sexual violence. And, uh, you know, the there's an article about this recently, you know, that the, the Me Too movement or, or the Time's Up has been successful by in, by going around that, by saying we're tired of trying to do that and, it, you know, sort of being public and, and the, this sort of shaming um, is the only way to get any sort of results. And even then it's like nobody's in jail, right? Nobody's going right. to jail. And that's the weird, the weird thing is, is that um, people will say like, well, you know, innocent people are being caught up. Almost certainly true in some cases. Um, but that in and of itself is not the problem. That is the output of the problem, right. which is that there are there is no like, you know, all of these women uh, believe that they were raped and could not uh, did not feel comfortable or could not go to police. Right. What the, who they felt comfortable. They felt comfortable going to UCB, knowing that they were probably like a fairly understanding organization or whatever it might be. 
And that's more specifically, they felt comfortable going to their friends right. and being like, this is a guy in our community who is poisoned. Right. 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 Like right. none of us are getting paid for this. All of us are sort of doing it for the art or the future career or whatever. And he is a guy who you should be afraid of and who is poisoning this space. And like, I think all like UCB's process is basically like, we can either have this guy who a lot of people think is a rapist still doing these shows and lose all of the other artists who will not want to work with him uh, and us as a result. And like in a, if you think of it more as an at will situation, as opposed to his very sort of weirdly specific, like gendered complaint that people believe rape accusations instead of rape denials Right. What it is, is they're making a decision about the community they want to be and whether they want women to feel safe in it. And so like it and whether or people to feel safe in it. Right. Like. It just doesn't seem like anything other than kind of a standard at will decision. Yeah. And it's just very like it's slapping a, you know, title seven claim on top of it just is sort of horrible um <laughs> I, I think i think we're gonna close uh on that uh but i'd like to thank everyone who was on the uh podcast with me today uh kept simple mark uh fear off michael ancient care lord mike uh tommy esq peter I am uh, you girls, Charles Star. Uh, good night, everybody, uh, and enjoy uh, Scalia's. Yeah, it would be cool. It could be too. Stop running around in circles off of what be true. Living them lies, eventually believing it's true. A lot of people here for us. One could be you. It's outrageous, and they just say nothing can save us. An ocean of brown fists and various flavors. A favor for a favor, man. This is a major. Tell me what you would do with no phones or pages, no kinkos, no FedEx, and no. What you gonna do when the police state begins? Well, it already began, but I guess it depends on what's really going on, what's happening, huh? Military target practicing, they finna write another Patriot Act again. The days are short, the nights is long, the fight goes on, the pistols and the pipes are drawn. Come on. We fight.